0: What we're going to do, kind of jumping into what we're going to do this quarter, we're going to look through the life of Peter. And uh, Peter's this guy, tonight we're going to look at the first time he meets Jesus. He's the closest thing to a best friend that Jesus has. He's the second most developed character in the New Testament. He's the person Jesus speaks to most often, addresses personally more often than anybody else. He's spoken of, he's written uh, a couple of books in the New Testament. He's the second biggest figure in the New Testament. And there are two reasons why we're going to look at the life of Peter. Um, The first reason is this. We're going to be asking the question, who is Jesus? And we're going to answer that question through this specific avenue. And uh, we'll we'll use an illustration to kind of show what this avenue looks like. When you're interested in somebody, maybe, uh, and trying to figure out who they are, what you do is you first begin to get to know their friends and ask their friends about them. Right? Right? Now that we have Facebook, things have been streamlined a little bit, right? And you Facebook stalk them. But then there's some people in here that have annoyingly figured out Facebook's privacy controls. And y'all are really annoying because y'all are unstalkable on Facebook. And let's all be honest. We're all frustrated by you people who make yourselves unstalkable on Facebook. Um <laughs> But what you do when you can't stalk them on Facebook is you find the common friends, right? And you take that side door and you find the pictures that they're in that uh, your other friends are You know what I'm talking about? Try to pretend like you don't do this. We're Facebook Stalking Jesus. That's our series this semester. We're going to, through the lens of one of his friends, ask, who is he? Um, thanks for laughing at that. Like, I don't know if that was creepy or awesome. Um, But so, it's an avenue for getting to know Jesus, but more so, uh, well, not more so, but in addition to that, in the person of Peter, we see the life of somebody struggling to figure out what it means to be a Christian. And the picture he gives us is very, very human. Uh, He has Great moments, and he has terrible moments. Great moments early in his Christian faith, and, and terrible moments early in his Christian faith, and great moments in his, uh, later in his Christian faith, as a mature Christian, whatever that means, and terrible moments. He's got a lot of fear. He's scared of man. He's scared of failure. And at times he's confident. And at times he's sure of what he believes in. And it's a beautiful and good thing for us to see in the life of somebody, Peter. Peter who is the person that Jesus will ask to preach the first time that anybody preaches when Jesus leaves. He's that significant that Jesus says, "You know what? I'm leaving." And Peter's going to be the first person that preaches. And he preaches that first sermon at Pentecost, which becomes the foundation for the church. And yet his life is full of ups and downs. That's a good thing for us to see the Christian life through the lens of this guy, Peter. And what I want to do tonight is we're going to look at the first time he encounters Jesus. And we're going to going to answer just two questions that in some ways are the two fundamental questions that we're all working out, and so we're not going to be able to kind of answer all the different facets of these questions, but two big questions that will give you a picture of what RUF is um, and what Jesus is teaching us. And those two questions that we're going to look at briefly tonight, again, we can't kind of cover all the bases in them, are simply this. Peter is just minding his own business. Uh, he's he's, he's an upper-middle-class fisherman in Palestine at this time, and his brother and a fishing buddy come to him and say, hey, you got to come check out this Bible study. That's what we're reading tonight is this first moment of Peter coming into the presence of this Jesus person and beginning to process it. And there are two things that we learn, two fundamental questions that are begin to be addressed in this passage that we'll begin to address. And it's this, what are you seeking and how do you change? What are you seeking and how do you change? That's what's happening in this passage is those two questions are begin to be addressed and those, those questions lay a foundation um, for, in a sense, everything all of us are doing. Those are two big questions we all have. Whether or not you identify yourself as a Christian, as a skeptic, wherever you are on the spectrum, at the end of the day, what are you seeking? That's huge. That's life-defining. And how do you change? It's right there with it. Those are the two big questions And And so what I want us to do is begin to examine that first point, what are you seeking? What's happening in this passage, um, you know, I didn't even read the passage, that's how distracted I am. Let me read the story for you and then we'll get into it. The next day again, John, who's John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following And said to them, here's our question, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ, and he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Let's pray. Lord, teach us tonight from your word as we enter into the life of this person who's trying to figure out who you are. And I pray, dear God, we'd see ourselves in the story, and we'd see you in this story, and we'd be able to earnestly grapple with the question of, what is it are we, that we are seeking? And how can we change? Be with us, dear Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. So here's what's happening. John the Baptist is this guy who's preaching in the first century. He's weird. People don't understand him. He's, he's out in the wilderness, but he's gained a little bit of a following, and he's claiming this thing. He's claiming this verse in Isaiah 40, verse 3, that says um, that he's the person who's announcing the Christ or the Messiah, so he's going around, and literally what his role in the story is, is he's the ring announcer introducing the people. He's literally saying, like, and now from Bethlehem, weighing in at 178 pounds, Lord of Lord, King of Kings, Jesus Christ. That's his role in redemptive history. Y'all think that's funny? That's a like perfect illustration of what he's doing. And he's stumbled upon this guy, and he's saying, this is what I've been about all, all along. This is what I've been about, this guy. And all of a sudden, his followers start shifting. His movement dies. He voluntarily kills his movement because he realizes it was about this person, Jesus, who's here now. And what John the Baptist is doing is he's saying, Here it is. Everything we've been looking for, it's right here. And they start to follow him, and Jesus turns around and he gives us that question. And his questions are always very penetrating. He has a way to go deep quickly. John's follower, John the Baptist's follower, starts to follow Jesus, and he turns around and goes, What are you seeking? What do you want out of this? Y'all are starting to follow me. He's not like, I'm so glad to have you aboard. He's not like, here's my iPad, sign out if you're interested in a small group. Nothing like that. He says, what are you seeking? And they call him teacher and they say, teacher, where are you staying? And what's implied there is they kind of have an idea of what they're in for, but they kind of don't and they want to continue to track with him of like, teach us more. We're aware that something significant is happening here, but we don't have a lot of understanding at some point. We want to come and be with you for a while and test the waters. And there's an important kind of sub point right here. They don't have their theological ducks in a row. As you read the Gospels, you see that the people who follow Jesus are often very confused about what he is and about what he's doing and what following him looks like. And that's them right now. They're like, I, I want to get into that, but they don't understand it. They just know kind of this simple fact, and this is the simple fact that's all that's, in a sense, required of you, Christian or not. They just kind of know, I think I want to be near him. I think I want to be around him. And so Andrew's on to something. He knows he's on to something. Not sure what it is, but he does the same thing that any of us do when we stumble onto something significant, and that is we tell the people near us. So he goes and gets his brother, and he does what everybody does when you think... Hey, I think I found something great, right? What do we do about the best restaurants we love? We tell the people around us about those restaurants. We're always telling the people around us about the things we think are great. So Andrew goes and gets his brother. And he goes to him and he says, We have found the Messiah. The term is, it's a a Jewish term from the Old Testament. and the, the Greek word is Christ. It's where we get the word Christ. And what that means is we found someone who is anointed, perhaps the anointed one. That's what Messiah means. It means anointed, something, somebody that's set apart for some special purpose, someone that God is set apart to do something very, very significant. And what's being communicated here is this. What's dawning on Andrew and what he's communicating to his brother Simon, who had become Peter, is this. We're not sure, but we think we found what we've been looking for. The answer to that question: What are you seeking? And that's the question put to us that I've, that is good for you to answer, regardless of where you are spiritually. What are you seeking? And it's beginning to dawn, on Andrew, and soon, Peter, that when you get closer and get closer to Jesus, you might find out that in fact He's the thing you've been seeking. He's the person that we've been seeking. Um, at the Wood household, we've had one song that's dominated, dominated the summer iTunes playlist. And it's the song that's dominated all of y'all's playlists as well, but half of you don't want to admit it. And you know what song that is. It's Call Me Maybe, right, by Carly Rae Jepsen. And you're wondering, how does Carly Rae Jepsen play into this point? When you listen to that song, does everybody recognize that there's one, in line, there's one line in that song that's profound? Most of the lines make you feel dumb after you finish singing them, right? Does anybody know what... There's one, there's one line when you sing, you're like, whoa, that was pretty profound. Any takers? You think I think you're thinking, before you came into my life, I missed you so bad. Yes. Does that hit anybody else? Awesome. Before you came into my life, I missed you so bad. I missed you so bad. I missed you, I think, so, so bad. <laughs> Um, you listen to that song and it's so stupid and then you're like, whoa, what happened right there? Carly Rae got deep. (laughs) But I love that lyric because it speaks to what's going on right here and it speaks to what's going on in all of us that we're longing and we're seeking and we're in a sense not really know, we don't really know what we're looking for. And, and, and we're waiting to meet that thing that's going to quiet the longing, that's going to complete us. And we find ourselves in the pursuit of all these things that we hope is going to quiet that thing, is going to meet it and complete us. And at Stanford, in some ways, I think there's kind of two, it's a little bit simplistic, there's two kinds of people. There are people who know, Right? Y'all are intimidating because you came here with a purpose. You know your major. You got your career played out. You know, in a sense, what you're seeking. You're driven toward it. You're relentless, and you will probably achieve it because you think you know what you're seeking. You've got it zeroed in on. And y'all are intimidating to the rest of us who get here and we're like, we got into Stanford, which is cool, right? But I don't know what I love right? And you're the people, and this is good, you're actually healthy for doing this, who constantly think in the back of your mind, and maybe you verbalized it a time or two, of like, maybe I need to take a quarter off, right? Okay, that's actually a healthy place to be. Don't worry about that. Don't panic about it. But you've thought, I see these passionate people who are driven. They know what they're seeking. And here I am. I haven't found a major I like. I haven't found a career field I'm particularly drawn toward. And and. Both groups of people are similar in this, that you both know you need to have something to seek. And one person's latched onto something, and the other person's floundering, wishing that they could find something that was so compelling they wanted to wrap their lives around it. And the people who are super driven, man, you're, you're, they're intimidating to be around because they already know. And you're wondering if you should even be here. And those goals, those aspirations, yep, those are our salvations. Those are our messiahs. Right? And they never save us. Because all those things, in a sense, what they function as is they function as many messiahs that can't do for you what the true messiah does. The messiah is that thing that you cling to, the thing that you are seeking, that you hope when you get there, it feels complete. You're satisfied. You are who you're supposed to be. You're connected with what you're supposed to be connected with. You have purpose. You have value. There are no more questions. Right? And they never get the job done. They never actually get you there. And the question is, can you honestly answer and assess what you're seeking? And that's a hard question. Can you, First of all, can you, answer, can you be honest with your answers to that question, what you're seeking? Secondly, can you honestly assess what you're seeking? Can you consider it and whether or not it will get you where you want it to get you? And here's how you know if you're really dealing with that question is you feel like, okay, you're you feel like you're tampering with the foundations of who you are as a person. Like if I question this, my life becomes undone. That's when you know you're finally touching in and you're striking that nerve of what's at the heart of me? What am I seeking? And will it work? Will it get me there? Can it be my Messiah? Can it be my salvation? You'll know it. Because it'll feel like you're tampering with the foundation of who you are. Now, John, earlier in John 1, John the Baptist uh, sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And he repeats himself again in this passage when he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And right there in that title, we have the difference between every other Messiah and this Messiah. In the title of the Lamb of God, we see the fundamental difference between Jesus as Messiah and... Mark Zuckerberg's life and success as your Messiah, right? Whatever it is. Every other Messiah, every mini Messiah that you attach yourself to and wrap your life around, this is what it is. Here's the problem. Here's where you've got to get. The problem is that thing you're aiming for, you haven't met the qualifications to receive its blessings, right? That life that you have, that good life that's just pictured out in front of you that you hope to get to within a year or two, within four years, five years, whatever it is, grad students like when you're 35 or something like that. <laughs> All right, we love you, we're glad you're here. But, but everybody knows you're not qualified to be there yet because you're not there. You're not qualified to receive the blessings of that Messiah yet. And so what, and what that Messiah demands of you, what that good life, that image of who you're supposed to be that's out in front of you in time, what it demands of you to get there is it demands your life. It demands your resources and your time and your focus and your energy, right? You have to give your life over in order to qualify yourself for the blessings of that Messiah, right? If you want to be 30 years old and be wealthy and have a beautiful spouse and have children and have a house that you're not in crazy debt for, you know what you have to give to get there? You have to give your life. That's what it takes to get there. If you give all your energy and your time and your resources to get there. It costs you your life to get there. So that's how those many Messiahs work. That's how you get toward their blessings, right? But here's the second problem. What do they end up giving you? And this is the thing that none of us are willing to believe the billionaires and the Tom Brady's on. And Tom Brady, in an interview, said this um, on 60 Minutes. He's talking after winning his third Super Bowl. He goes, I've got it all. I've got three Super Bowl rings, and I'm married to a supermodel, but there has to be something more. None of us believes Tom Brady's being true. We actually still want to get to his place, whatever that looks like in our lives, and assess it from our standpoint. We don't believe him on that. We don't believe the people who have everything we want when they say it didn't work. None of us believe it. But the reality is every Messiah you latch yourself onto and wrap yourself around and hope for you're not qualified for it you have to give your life to get it and it will not give you anything in return. A friend of mine a Christian thinker wrote an essay on beauty and and I think it kind of penetrates it kind of gets down through all of those false, those many messiahs we chased after. And he says this, imagine God appeared to you and said, I'll make a deal with you if you wish. I'll give you anything and everything you ask, pleasure, power, honor, wealth, freedom, even peace of mind and a good conscience. Nothing will be a sin, nothing will be forbidden, nothing will be impossible for you. You'll never be bored and you'll never die. Here's the only caveat. God says, you shall never see my face. And our heart stops at that last line. Because despite all the other apparent joys, like, really, everything I want? We realize that that's not our real desire. We actually want to see the face of God. We are made for the face of God. So you have those many messiahs that promise the world, demand your life, and give you nothing. And then you have this person called the Lamb of God. And he's different than the many messiahs but in some ways he's similar. He's similar in this regard. We're also not qualified for his blessings. Every, everything you worship, everything you wrap your life around, you very quickly find out you're not qualified for its blessings. We don't like to hear it, but we know it. And I'm not going to spend time proving it. That's for, another, that's for another time. But in all honesty, we know this. This is why we're not qualified for the blessings of this Messiah. is because we know that we don't actually love what's lovely, and we don't love what's beautiful, and we don't love justice, and we don't love humility. That's what's required of you, to... Be, to Absolutely love what is beautiful at all times, which means not yourself, but something more transcendent. We don't do that. That's why we're disqualified from the presence of this Messiah. But here's the thing. We haven't pleased him, but the path to reconnecting to him is different. This is where he begins to be different from the other Messiahs. The path to reconnecting with him is not us giving our lives to him. It's actually him giving his life for us. Exact opposite happens. That's how we're reconnected. That's what's being depicted in this word, Lamb of God. He makes us acceptable by His work instead of us trying to make ourselves acceptable by His work. I mean, excuse me, by our work. That's what the Lamb of God is the means by which our unacceptability is removed from us and we are made clean so that we can be in His presence and be reconnected. The Lamb of God is a reference to Isaiah 53 7, but it's also a reference to this whole swath of literature in the Old Testament where temple worship is laid out for the Jewish people. And what temple worship, one of the, the kind of the central event in that is that people bring animals into the temple. They lay their hands on the animals as a symbol, as a sign of their unacceptability, leaving themselves and being set on that animal and the animal dies on the altar. Now the animal doesn't save them. The animal's a teaching tool. It's a sacrament. It's pointing forward toward the Lamb of God who would actually come and bear our unacceptability, which is just another word for sin, that would bear our sin on the cross and wipe away our unacceptability so that the punishment for it is paid for and we're restored to Him, not by our own work, but you see by His work on our behalf. And not only that, so we're restored in a different way, not by giving our lives, but by Him giving His life. And the reward is that we're connected finally to the thing we're meant to be connected to, which is God. Which is God. So here's the application coming to this point. What are you seeking? First of all, have the courage to begin to see through your many messiahs. They're complex, some of them are socially unacceptable, and some of them are socially acceptable. Our hearts are really sophisticated in the way that we dress them up, in the way we approve them, the way we protect them and defend them from the kind of introspection that encountering Jesus will require of you. Well, the things that we want to hide back in the corner and say, all right, I want to follow Jesus. I don't, want to, I don't want to wrap my life around anything that's going to give me emptiness and destroy me. I want to wrap my life around something that's life-giving, namely God. But that can't mean this too. That thing, right, that we're holding back there... That's your many Messiah that you're most attached to. We're very sophisticated in the way we keep Jesus away from all the many messiahs we've latched our lives to. Have the courage to start to see through those things and question them. And then secondly, follow the true Messiah. Follow the true Messiah. It's okay to begin with just a little bit of understanding, with bad theology, with a little bit of knowledge of the Bible. It's OK. all you have to do is start to say, like, "I think I want in on Jesus. I think I want that to be my Messiah." And you're connected to Him not because of your religious or your moral performance, and that is good news. It means you can stop wondering if your religious or moral performance has disqualified you, because it was never the thing that qualified you in the first place. it was simply him that qualified you. That's what we're seeking. Some of us know that that's what we've been seeking all along. Some of us are beginning to think maybe we should seek that above other things. And some of us, for the first time, maybe are thinking, like, that's interesting. That's interesting. I want to consider it further. Maybe it's the Lamb of God I've been seeking. But Jesus doesn't just leave us there. In this passage, he also starts to work on the life of Peter. So, here's this guy who shows up and he gets called the Messiah. The thing that they've been seeking, the Jewish people have been seeking for thousands of years. And then he enters into the life of this person called Peter and change starts to take place. So he's not just answering the question of what are you seeking. He's also beginning, begin to, giving a, uh, beginning to give us a glance, a glimpse into the question of how then do I change? Because he doesn't just leave us. He begins to work in our lives. How will you change? What are the means by which you're going to become the person that you wish you were? We all know that we're not the person that we hope to become. Uh, We often think that the problem is a lack of effort or a lack of resources. I don't have the time or the money. Uh, I haven't yet put in the hours and kind of the willpower to become the person that I'm hoping to become, right? The problem is this we keep seeking to acquire the resources and keep seeking to put forth the effort, but we keep finding that we're not changing. Maybe we've changed the circumstances around us a little bit, maybe we've accumulated some of the stuff we want, but we all wake up to ourselves every morning. And in this encounter with Jesus, we begin to see how the Bible views change taking place in our lives. And the way we see it is Peter's given this nickname his real name is actually Simon, the son of John. It would actually be Simon uh, Johnson, would be the way we'd say it, right? And, and Jesus comes in and says, you will be called, not you're now called, you will be called Cephas, which is Aramaic, um, the Greek word is Petros, Peter. And a new name symbolizes a new identity, a new person. And what we'll see through the life of Peter is someone who begins to transform from this kind of unassuming, we don't know much about him, upper middle class fishermen's all we know, to someone who will become the foundation, uh, the, lay the foundation for the church, who will become probably the second most significant figure in Christianity besides Jesus. Jesus dies for his people and Peter starts the movement after his death. And he's called this name Peter, to depict the fact that he's going to grow into something totally different over the course of his time with Jesus. He's become a pillar. And the question then is, how then does he grow? How then does he change? And the, the answer is, really, is very simple. He changes just because he's close to Jesus. The way the Bible views change is that you change because you're close to Jesus, Jesus doesn't identify people because of their potential or because of their greatness. Rather, people have potential and grow into greatness because they get close to Jesus. Jesus doesn't identify people because of the potential they have, the ability they have, because of their greatness. Rather, people grow into greatness and grow into potential because they get close to Jesus. How do you change? How do you, we're talking about real, fundamental change, not just. Repainting the exterior. How do you really change who you are? And the Bible answer is that you're changed by getting near to Jesus, not by endeavoring to be what you wish you were. And that's the method we've all kind of couched our whole lives on. You don't change by endeavoring to be who you wish you were. You change by getting near to Jesus. We think that it's drive from within that changes us, and the Bible says that it's actually love from without shown to you. That has the capacity to fundamentally change who we are. Uh, I know in a couple of weeks, uh, a new version of Les Mis is going to come out in theaters. Um, I'm sure it'll be awesome. It's an amazing story. One of the most beautiful moments in that story. It uh, largely follows um, a character named Jean Valjean. Um, some of you all have probably read it, maybe seen the musical. Uh, and the story kind of begins with him being released from a 19, 19 years um, in prison. He's a hardened criminal. He's an ex-con. Um, he, he, he's marked as that. He can't find food. He can't find anything. And he's taken in by this priest. Uh, he's angry. He's, uh, he's desperate. He's frightening. Uh, he's taken in by this local bishop. And in the middle of the night, Valjean gets up. And he steals the bishop's silverware and runs off in the middle of the night. And the local police capture him. Uh, they suspect uh, that he's stolen the silverware. They find it all, and they take him back to the bishop's house. And they ask him about the silverware. And this is what happens in the story. You should see the movie. There's an old movie with Liam Neeson that's great. There's a musical that's coming out that's great. With some Liam Neeson fans over there. <laughs> this is what happens the police ask the bishop, did he steal this silverware? And the bishop says, no, I gave it to him. And not only that, he forgot the candlesticks. And the bishop goes back into his house and takes more silver and hands it to Jean Valjean. Now this is the catalyst for Valjean going from being a scoundrel and a criminal to this moment he gets completely transformed. And the rest of the story is about Valjean, the servant and the hero. He becomes a totally different character because he was loved by someone else because he was shown mercy. Not because he endeavored from within to be a different person, but because someone showered him with kindness. That's the Bible's view of change. That's what happens to Peter. He gets around Jesus, and Jesus preaches the steadfast love and the grace and the kindness and the compassion of God, and Jesus displays it in his death on the cross. That's why Peter changes. So I'll close... Real quickly, for the Christian, if you're here tonight and you identify yourself that way, the reason that we feel so powerless to change, the reason we keep running into ourselves and we're so frustrated is this, because this is what most of us are doing. We're staring at ourselves and we're saying, be better. It's just spiritual navel-gazing. We're staring at ourselves and saying, be better, stop being what you are. And it hasn't worked yet and it's not going to work tomorrow. It's never going to change you, it's going to grow, you're going to grow weary. And you're going to grow insecure. Peter has changed because he gets near to Jesus and Jesus raises his eyes and makes Peter look at him. And Jesus says things to him like, I will make you a rock. I will never leave you nor forsake you. All that I have is yours. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what changes Peter. Here, so Here's the application release. In a really simple way. Christians, stop trying to be Christians. Stop thinking to yourself, be more Christian. It hasn't worked. It's not going to work. Look at Jesus. Get near Jesus. Hear what Jesus has to say to you. What he has to say to his people is this: regardless of the way you've lived up to this point, he has this to say. Well done, good and faithful servant, because he has qualified you for his presence. You haven't qualified yourself for his presence. Here that verdict he has for you. Well done. And stop staring at yourself and saying, be better. For the skeptic, if if you come in here and you're not sure how you identify yourself, here's kind of what I throw out there for you. Ask yourself if you really believe that that image, that, that life that you're seeking, if you really believe it can save you are you willing to consider that you were made for something more than that? That when you get to that, because you're probably going to get there because you're pretty capable, that you're going to find it wasn't enough. It's not quite what you were made for. And secondly, when you grow weary of trying to be a different person and find that you keep running into yourself, just consider for a moment that the God for whom you were made is also the God that can change you. And God does it not by fear and intimidation. But He does it by establishing the truth in your heart that His gracious love secures you to Himself. and That He holds you. What are you seeking and how do you change? Those are our two big questions for all of life. As we look through the life of Peter, we're going to explore more and more what it looks like to be near to Jesus. Let's pray.